Welcome to the Nicolay Wealth Management Investment Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Officer Mike Steppe discuss why the U.S. dollar is strengthening against other currencies, how inflation affects interest rates, how employment affects inflation, and much more. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss the latest updates on investment management, the economy, and much more in this podcast hosted by Anthony Wilhelms of Nicolay Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us. This is Anthony Wilhelms, your host of another Nicolay Wealth Management podcast. Joining me today is Mike Steppe, a senior vice president at the bank. Well, we have Adam Longley uh, out of the office for a couple of weeks. Mike gets to lead the way today. Mike, this can you kick fun. us off? Yeah, I agree. I'll get to pepper you with even more questions today. Would you kick us off with an update on what's happening in the economy and financial markets? Sure. It's, it stays interesting in here. We've seen over the last couple of weeks, both the bond and the stock market rallying slightly. And investors seem to be feeling more confident that the Fed will be able to bring down inflation. When you, when you look at, in the, you try to quantify this by looking at it in the market and seeing what the implied inflation rates that get priced into the tips. Those are the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And if you think back to the middle of April, um, those prices were getting priced in at about 3% for 10 years. So people thinking, wow, the Fed is targeting 2%, but we're really going to come in substantially higher at 3%. Uh, On April 21st, it it peaked at 3.04. If you look at that this morning, Friday, the 22nd of July, that rate is 234. So we've seen a 70 basis point decrease there. In in the world of tips, that's a big move. And in a three month period to have that happen. So the market is saying the Fed probably has this thing, um, you know, wired. They know what they're doing, where the market is feeling more confident that the Fed is going to be able to, to bring down, dampen down inflation. That sort of makes people feel better. So you're seeing the S&P 500 uh, was down below 3,700 as a level. It's now back around 4,000. And so people are starting to look and say, maybe a lot of the bad news is priced into the market. Now they start quickly transitioning to, well, if the Fed is going to, is going to dampen down inflation. It may wind up tipping the economy into a recession. And so there's more worry, it seems like today, about a recession uh, than what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. You see that quantifiable in in the uh, fixed income markets. So two-year treasuries that were up mid-threes, almost three and a half percent, down today under 3% at 297. Five-year treasuries down to 287. 10-year treasuries at 279. The important thing to look at is what's the difference between the two-year and the 10-year? So what's that slope of the yield curve? It's a negative 18 basis points today. And again, that's a signal that people are worried that the Fed is gonna tip us into a recession. So that's out there, but in general, people feel it a little bit better than what we've seen over the last couple of months. 
So Mike, so many good points to talk about there. One uh, I'll mention or to ask you about is that yield curve inversion or when the short-term treasuries are higher yielding than the longer-term treasuries that has historically signaled a recession or a significant pullback in equity markets at some point in the future. What's your take on that? Well, it's it's one of the warning signs that have been effective in the past. So you look at that and you, and you say, yes, the, the time lags are always different, but it's one of those signals that you get that you ought to pay attention to. So I think we are seeing a slowing in economic activity. So if you think back to a year ago, we were probably three and a half percent GDP growth and we're now slowing. It, it probably for this year, it'll come in at 2% for the year. But if you look at it today, it's probably 1%. If we go into a recession, maybe it'll be a mild recession. We might be down 1%. I don't know how much different a positive 1% or a negative 1% is. So it, it's going to feel like we're in a slower growth mode. And, and I think we clearly are. That's good to, I, it's good perspective. I want to go back to your comments about the Fed and inflation. And I, I was, it, it was great to hear your point about uh, tips and what they are. For example, the market is telling us about forecast inflation. And you can correct my dates here, but if I think back a year or a year and a half ago, it seems to me that the Fed was saying we had a greater risk of deflation than having runaway inflation. Um, and maybe you have to push that to two years for that to be the case. No, and so- Clearly you're right, they, they were. And, and the, the market was, we didn't, we were, the Fed had always been talking about having 2% target and they were, inflation was coming in at 1.1 1 .1 or, or, or even less than one. So the markets were saying, wow, great to have that target guys. Um, but you know, it's, it's not ever relevant. So yes, we were, we were substantially below that. So given that, that is, uh, it feels to me like a pretty big miss in the forecast by the Fed of uh, looking at inflation slightly below 2% and saying, man, we really have to get it up to two. It feels like they have a tendency to overshoot. Yet the <laughs> forecast going forward seems like uh, the world is saying there will be a proverbial soft landing in rates and the economy. How do we reconcile the um, maybe the historical accuracy of the Fed with what forecasts suggest will be true? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, the Fed has a hard job and they, they haven't been right. And I think we just, we have to recognize that they're not perfect at this. And, you know, there's, you, you can have confidence in the Fed, but think that, you know, at the beginning of the year, um, when they looked at this, they said a lot of these inflationary pressures were transitory. They they weren't and, and we're, we're we're living with that now. So they missed they on inflation forecasting. They haven't been very accurate, and so that's an ongoing concern as you look at it. I, I think in general their policy moves have have been reasonable, and so they're they're doing what what they need to do given the circumstances. But they did get a late start on this in terms of dealing with inflation. Sure. I appreciate your, uh, me your measured speech. You're always thoughtful <laughs> in how you say things, Mike. Uh, when it comes to the U.S. dollar strength, we've seen the U.S. dollar reach 
relatively high levels or strong levels relative to the rest of the world. And now we're talking, and usually that follows when we see higher interest rates domestically relative to abroad. You mentioned interest rates starting to fall locally. Do you see that having an effect on the U.S. dollar? And well, when we look at this, it's always on a relative basis with the dollar. And so if you go back and, and I'm a quant, so I try to quantify everything. If you look at what moves the dollar historically, it's been three things. Interest rate differentials, the difference in economic growth between different countries, and then a flight to quality factor. So the quants would tell you that those three things amount to about 72% of the movement in the U.S. currency. So when you look at that, you look at the biggest piece, it's the interest rate differentials. And there, you look this morning, 10-year treasuries are at a 2.78%. German bunds are at 1.03. So a differential there of 175 basis points. So yes, our treasury rates have come down, but so, so have German bunds. And so the differential is still relatively wide. If you think about it, if you're a German investor, you're going to move money into the U.S. because you look at that and you say, I could get 1% in Germany. I could get almost 3% in the U.S. I think I'll take my chances there. So that in interest rate differential point is, is big. Secondly, when you look at economic growth, yes, we're talking about 2% this year in terms of GDP growth maybe 1.3% next year, but that still looks stronger than Germany. And you look at what's happening in terms of they're having to cut back on their, on their uh, energy usage. And you say, yeah, they, it's much more likely that they'll tip into a recession. So again, you're looking at it on a relative basis between Europe, Japan, the other developed market countries. And we still look, as, even though we look relatively weak, we're stronger than they are. And the third thing that you look at when you think about the dollar is, is it benefiting from a flight to, flight to quality? And it sure is. When you get in a war, when Russia invades Ukraine, and when you've got this dynamic going on and you've got refugees all over the world uh, moving into, into different countries, you're going to get investors saying, man, I need to be safe. And the depth of the U.S. markets is just such a powerful factor that comes into play. And so those three things, the interest rate differentials, the growth differentials, and a flight to safety, means the dollar is strengthening. It's at a 20-year high. This isn't a modest increase in the dollar. This is a significant one. That's, uh, I love the explanation. I'm going to take us to energy related to that. We've Most of us have noticed that gas at the pump is now a little more reasonable than it was. Is the stronger dollar maybe contributing to that? And then I have a, a longer question related to um, your comments about U.S. dollar strengthening because of interest rates at flight to quality and what a weaker euro will mean for energy prices overseas. What, what you can count on with energy prices in here is that they're going to be really volatile. So I, I think it's really difficult to project out and say, wow, I, I have a higher sense of confidence about this specific thing is going to happen with energy prices, except that they're going to be volatile. 
it, the you know in terms of where what we're finding with energy is that it's much closer to capacity in terms of the amount of of, of energy that can be produced. We're we're near some capacity uh, constraints, and secondly, that people are moving around. So when you look at people uh, are active, they're they're people are going on vacation, they're taking flights. If you look at American Express earnings this morning, we're really good because people are moving around. They're using their American Express charge card. So you're seeing that level of activity going on. And so people are using energy um, and there's a limited amount of capacity. So when you're at that edge, you're going to stay volatile. But short-term price movements, pretty hard to judge. Perfect. Uh, you mentioned uh, American Express, which makes me think about consumer credit or credit more broadly. And that oftentimes is a reasonable indicator of what's next. Are we seeing consumers add leverage, pay down leverage? How are they feeling about the world? Are you seeing any interesting trends in consumer credit? Yeah, you're clearly, when you look at that data that comes in, you're seeing consumers spending more on experiences less on goods so but they're staying active they're spending so you've got housing is getting weaker auto sales are getting weaker so home goods sales are getting weaker but people are still spending and you're seeing that spending likely to continue in here because people have jobs and this this whole thing sort of goes back to the people have jobs and when people have jobs and they feel like Yes, if, if they left this job, they could find another job. When they feel that sense of confidence, they tend to spend. Now, that, that, that consumer psyche is fragile, and we see that in the data, that when, when they ask people how they feel about sort of the economy and how the world, they're very negative. And you can understand that. We've lived through a pandemic. We've, we've had a, a Russia invade Ukraine. We got higher. You, you mentioned that gas prices are lower. They are, but it's still relatively high, and it's consuming a bigger part of people's uh, income on, on gas so and energy in general. So that, that makes it a more fragile, as you look at this, the, the chances for error are, are narrower. But inflation question for you to hopefully help me with, and it's the, at least in my mind, the looking for an explanation of does higher employment improve or hurt inflation? Meaning as consumers have more money because they're working, obviously they could spend more, which could drive up prices. On the other side, working presumably creates more goods if we have more people working. And if there's more supply, we should see inflation go down. Which side do you think we're going to see going forward? I think it all depends. The answer to this question is sort of timing. In the short run, right now, it's inflationary because it's ticking up and people are, are getting pay increases. And so that's happening. And so people have more money to spend. So it positively contributes to higher inflation. I think longer run, if you look out over the next three to four years, um, there, there is a, dis, a deflationary component to it because we are producing more goods. And when you look at most companies that are operating are trying to figure ways to cut costs out of their products, make their, their products at least stay at a certain price or go down. 
uh, much less in the way of raising prices. Much fewer companies think, wow, I've got a lot of pricing power. I could increase my price by 10% and my customers will just buy as much. No, they probably won't. Uh, it's pretty clear they won't. So uh, I think, you know, over time that, the, you know, we're getting more productive. The, the data doesn't necessarily show that out there, but we have a hard time measuring productivity. But you just sense it in companies that companies are getting uh, better at sort of managing all these processes. And so they're driving down costs and we're, we see that. I like that perspective. I'll look at the, I'll think about where does the long term take us. Um, let's transition specific to Wisconsin. You pay a lot of attention uh, to Wisconsin and municipalities in the industry, given your role with the bank. What are you seeing locally? Well, if you start, because it's so important, if you start with employment, the situation in Wisconsin, and you can also think of it as the contiguous states around Wisconsin. So it's Michigan, it's Minnesota, it's Iowa. Uh, those states following a similar pattern. If you if you took a, uh, a picture of sort of what's happened nationally uh, with the employment rebound, you'd see the very same pattern in Wisconsin. So almost perfectly. When you look at the job situation, construction, trade, transportation, utilities, information services, those sectors are actually stronger uh, than they were uh, they, than they were pre-pandemic. So we've actually got more jobs in those fields. Again, construction, trade, those sorts of things, uh, information services, not a surprise, but you're, you're, the data bears that out. When you look at what's weaker, education, health, leisure and hospitality, government, those, those sectors of the economy uh, are 4% below pre-pandemic levels in terms of jobs. So uh, again, I don't think it's surprising, but I think that's sort of, if you said, well, what, what areas seem to be doing well, what areas seem to be struggling, the data back up what your, what your gut feel would be. The other big thing out there is what's happening with pay. And when you look at that in Wisconsin, um, when you look at from the first quarter, because we've got that data, pay was up on an annualized basis, 6.7% in Wisconsin. We were the ninth strongest amongst the states. And when you look at it by areas, the Green Bay area was strong, Appleton was strong, the weak areas were Milwaukee, Racine. Uh, again, what, what you might expect out of that. And we're seeing so a, a decent level of economic activity in Wisconsin. It's good. The other thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about is what's the level of entrepreneurial activity? And it seems like across the state, we have really good entrepreneurial activity. There's, there's a lot of business startups and You've got a lot of things happening, whether it's Madison, Green Bay, Appleton. You've got things happening, and that's a real positive. So I, I, I feel good about that. I love the outlook. It's, uh, there's so much happening um, in all these markets. Um, so if we think to, we have an upcoming Fed open market meeting 
which is uh, when rates will be kind of discussed. Can you give us some commentary about what your view is coming up? Sure. I think this meeting, and the Fed has been sort of leaking information, it would seem like, in the past. So you have sort of an idea that they're probably going to raise rates 75 basis points at this meeting. At least that would be the expectation going into the meeting. So with that, we'll probably see at the next meeting, which is in September, probably a 50 basis point increase. And then there's the next meeting is November, another 25, and then a meeting in December be 25. So if you look at all those, I think you don't want to take each meeting individually, but you want to look at it and say, where are we going to be at year end? And I would guess the overnight rates are going to be 340 to 350 uh, levels by year end. And so, you know, might be 25 extra basis points here or 25 basis points less here. But in general, are we moving towards that kind of a, a year end number? And I think we probably are. So I think that's what the Fed a couple of months ago decided that that's where they needed to be. The June numbers were their, the dot plots that everybody rips away on as being not very helpful. Well, if you looked at that, that's what you saw. And so sometimes they are sort of helpful in getting a gauge of where the, where the Fed members collectively sort of think rates have to get to to sort of dampen down inflation. So it's not any individual move, but it's sort of the collective over that time period. You helped me clarify just a couple of terms. You say overnight rates, um, you say get to 340 or 350 by year end. What is it, when you think of overnight rates, maybe put it in layman's terms and compare it to longer term rates and how you also think of that 340 to 350 by year end. Okay, I start, I'm sort of a geek and I'm a banking geek and that's even worse. So for a banker, they think about it as the Fed funds rate. So the rate that banks will sell money overnight to each other, okay? And that sets the, the overnight, That's the, they, they call that the Fed funds rate. And those rates sort of become what money market funds and what commercial paper get priced off of. So generally that'll become short-term rates will be targeted off those, those interbank rates that, that go back and forth. So I'm thinking about that as 3.4 to 3.5% by year end. If you go back to where we were a year ago, they were at zero or pretty close to zero. So we've had a noticeable increase in those rates. And that's the primary tool that the Fed has. When you look at what the Fed can do, they can change that those rates. And that's what, you know, that impacts the cost of money for borrowers. So whether you're uh, taking out a mortgage or whether you're a business borrowing, if if overnight rates are at 340, 350, that's sort of the benchmark that everybody looks at in, in setting rates from there. Perfect. And how do those, so that I think of as a short-term rate at the bank or maybe similar to like a one-year treasury bond or a short-term bond, mm -hmm. how does that affect uh, like a longer bond or maybe put it in something like a 15-year or a 30-year mortgage? And here's where the Fed has really good control historically over overnight rates. They could set those and, and sort of make that happen. 
When you think about longer term rates, those are more set by supply and demand in the market. And so historically, the Fed hasn't had much influence there, as much influence there. But what changed over the last four or five years when the Fed came in and they did so much buying, so they would buy 10-year treasuries and they would buy 30-year mortgages. And so they drove rates down. So by buying up and owning a third of all mortgage-backed securities and 25% or 22% of all treasury notes, that kind of buying gave them significant influence. So the Fed does have some influence on longer term rates, but the market still drives it. And the market expectation is that the Fed's gonna be reasonably effective. That's what people are thinking today. They're gonna be reasonably effective in controlling inflation. So the buyers and the sellers in the market have been holding a, a pretty flat yield curve. Now it's slightly inverted. But when you think about it, the slope of that curve is pretty flat. And that's saying that rates will probably stay around that 3.5% level, maybe lower. You see 10-year treasuries today down to down under 280. So um, the market's telling us that they think the Fed is going to be, you know, be successful in this campaign against inflation. Oh, Mike, I could talk to you all day. I have about 50 <laughs> more questions, but I know I better let you go and get back to it today. This has been great having you join me. Um, and to everybody, our audience, thank you for joining us. If you have anything else you want to ask Mike or me or Adam when he's back in the office or anyone on the team, please contact anybody in the, the wealth management group at Nicolay. We're happy to help. Uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with Adam and Mike. Uh, have a great day.